almost had a naked lunch once. This shall not stand. Have fun riding that unicorn in heaven. Yeah, look how it worked out revival. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's more arty than sporty, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. Why did you throw the book, Andy? It was a legal matter <laughs> involving pigs. It, it was, in fact. And the ownership therein. <laughs> Welcome back, cousins. This is our recap for Downton Abbey Series 6, Episode 5. Mm-hmm. Um, Listen, y'all. It's late. We're tired. We're going to get... This is either going to be great or maybe not so great. We're going to find out. Wow. I wasn't going to, like, apologize for anything. Oh, yeah. I was just trying to think of something clever. Oh, yeah. I, I Well, see, that's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we get into that, it's time to check in with our cousin of the week. Cousin Genevieve writes, greetings, cousins. I have just recently found your podcast. Sadly for me, I was not listening throughout the run of the show, though I'm thrilled to have you both for this final season. I have a couple comments regarding season six, episode four. One, yay Gwen. I totally squealed when she showed up. I'm glad they brought her back so we could see how happily her life turned out. The doctor told Anna that the stitch would be done at 12 weeks, not as soon as she became pregnant. Oh, thank you. Yes. Though I was bummed to see Officer Bummer show up again, I believe that the Baxter story is deeper than she stole jewelry and gave it to Coyle. I believe that he first seduced her, then used that information to blackmail her into stealing the jewelry, and that is why she took and continues to take the blame. There are a couple hints in this episode. The first is Baxter's comment that he ruined me, which would be the case if they had sex. We all saw what happened to Ethel when Major Mustache seduced her. She was thrown out of the house without a reference. A criminal record would be better than being unvirtuous. Next, the comment that two of the women he used are prostitutes. I could easily imagine the women who Coyle used, who possibly also went to jail, would not have had a connection like Thomas to get them a new position. Since they had already had sex, I think it would be easier, for lack of a better word, for them to become prostitutes than if they were virtuous. Thank you, cousins, for my weekly dose of Downton Snark. Regards, maiden aunt Genevieve. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Good point about Anna. Yes. That was an error on our part. (laughs) That's right. And as far as the Baxter plot, I've always assumed that there was some kind of sexual relationship. Um, And, you know, and I don't have any issues with this as a plot point fundamentally. Yeah. It's simply the fact that this has stretched on for so long, despite this action never having had any consequences in her current situation. Right. So for me... Yeah, it's and- more of the frustration with that. I mean, I, you know, in the sense that Baxter is a pretend person, <laughs> you know, it sucks for her that this happened. And it I- does. And unlike, say, Bates or, you know, present day Branson, I don't have anything against her as a fictional person. Yeah. It's just pointless is all. Yeah. And, you know, it's just an ill use of a poorly conceived character. Yeah. And there's yeah. nothing that we can do to change <laughs> that part of it. Right. Um, so congratulations on being Cousin of the Week. Yes. Uh, I do have a little information from last week's Cousin of the Week, Cousin Elizabeth, um, who wrote in with some 
comments about being in the Navy mm-hmm. and being pregnant uh, because she spent eight years in the Navy. So the way they deal with pregnancy is something I actually know about as opposed to the wild conjecture of Telegram's past. <laughs> the many rules can be boiled down to one, pregnant women cannot be exposed to unnecessary risk or two, be assigned to a place that is too far from medical care that can handle pregnancy complications. I think it's within four or six hours. There are a bunch of specific rules as there are a lot of jobs and within each job all sorts of different assignments. But the big one for the Navy is when a woman is part of a ship's company. If the ship is in port, she can stay on board until her 20th week. If she discovers she is pregnant while the ship is deployed, she is transferred ashore as soon as feasible. Postpartum, women are not transferred to operational assignments until after until a year after the baby is born. So, okay. for those of you who, like us, had questions <laughs> and concerns about naval pregnancies, <laughs> put your minds at ease yeah. <laughs> and sign up for the Navy. Your king needs you. It's a queen now, but, you know. Still. Yeah. You're sovereign. Yeah. You're elected official. <laughs> right. Get out there on the high seas and don't get pregnant. <laughs> it's good advice regardless. This message brought to you by the Admiralty. <laughs> All right. Uh, and if you have something to say and would like to throw your hat in the ring to be Cousin of the Week, you can send us a telegram at upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. You can send us a carrier pigeon at 5 Maggie Smiths. That's at 5, the number 5 Maggie Smiths. Or search for us on Facebook. We're Up Yours Downstairs! Exclamation point. Yes. Actually, really, if we're being pedantic about it, it's up yours, comma, downstairs. Oh, that's exclamation a good point. point. We've been leaving out that poor comma all this but time. commas are not nearly as exciting as an exclamation point. No, it's in their nature. Yes. Much like servants. <laughs> All right. Why is a comma like a servant? <laughs> so, we see old Mr. Mason riding a cart past Downton. No uppity car for him. At Pig Farm, Daisy helps Mason unload some pig boards. They control the pigs. Yes, they do. Uh, Mary and Branson walk the grounds as they so often do. And they're like a good, like, 40 minute walk from the house at this point, but they're the idle rich. They have nothing better to do. <clears throat> Branson asks if Mary is annoyed about Pig Farm, and she's just annoyed that they fixed it while she was gone. But Mason is a good man, and pigs are his specialty. Oh, ho! Yeah. My, my! As of course. What a clever callback <laughs> to previously established information about this character. Oh, yes. We all knew. He's always been a pig specialist. We have always been at war with East Asia. <laughs> Do you suppose any of these pigs are uh, oracular? <laughs> That's a good question. I just had an extended conversation about the Chronicles of Prydain by Lloyd Alexander, and I forgot the specific term and the name for the pig mm-hmm. which is Henwen, and she's an oracular pig yeah so she can look in puddles and see the future although she can't talk so yeah well if one of them was oracular they might have mourned mr drew about getting involved with all this nonsense <laughs> or really any number of other things depending <laughs> yeah. where their loyalties lie i mean actually probably the pigs they're are- her pigs <laughs> that's right probably the pigs are oracular just nobody listens to them <laughs> well they can't talk <laughs> well yeah it's old magic time. <laughs> From before the dawn of time. From before the war, more important. <laughs> That's right. Mary asks what Branson's next task will be, and he says, well, he'll start with the repair shop, much like the repair shop he already had that was in Boston that was perfectly fine. Uh, he'll put it on the edge of the estate for passing trade. Mary asks if Papa is ready for that, and they say they must be gentle with him. 
I mean, he seems pretty fine. Yeah. Like, as far as them running the estate goes. Yeah. I mean, he is just taking a very zen attitude. He doesn't seem to be complaining about their decisions You know, the at Dowager all. Countess could learn a lot from his example. Yeah, that's true. In the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore asks when Mr. Mason moves in, and Daisy says that the equipment's already there, and that the Drews are leaving on Wednesday. Spoiler alert, we never see the Drews in this episode. No. Presumably, they all go off to become prostitutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope... I hope they find the whore institute <laughs> god <laughs> no i wish we'd had the foresight to make whore institute t-shirts <laughs> class of 1921 <laughs> or whatever year it was matthew was dead right yeah something yeah, because like ethel was around right that was after the war yeah yes it does we can't <laughs> we can't go down that path <laughs> If we look back, we are lost. <laughs> Mrs. Patmore asks about Mr. Mason's old farm, and Henderson has taken the land and will move his uncle into the house. Fun fact, his uncle, also a pig. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Patmore says there's no need for Daisy to be bitter and suggests that they go over on the day that Mr. Mason moves in with a picnic tea. Andy, who is also there in the same room, <laughs> volunteers to come as well, and Mrs. Patmore agrees. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Because uh, uh, Patmore can certainly approve a day off for Andy. Absolutely. And, you know, why just show them all showing up when we could have had a conversation <laughs> about it as well? At the library, Edith is reading a letter and tells Lord Grantham that a friend will be in London and he wants to meet up with her. Lord Grantham says he... Which is the, you know, 1925 equivalent of... And Edith says it's nothing like that. Spoiler alert. It's exactly like that. Uh, and that it is Bertie. Lord Grantham remembers him. And Edith says that he is the one that helped her get the magazine you know, out. In Edith's defense, her last two boyfriends <laughs> left her at the altar and got killed by Hitler. <laughs> so I can understand why she's reticent to involve anyone in any developing attachment. Especially since there's still plenty of time for the next one to also get killed by Hitler. <laughs> The Sir Anthony Strallen of WW2, they'll call him. <laughs> the Dowager Countess arrives and says that she needs a favor and asks if McGee is there. She is not. Edith leaves. The Dowager Countess says the Minister of Health is coming to the county. Lord Grantham says, Mr. Chamberlain? I don't think so. Because uh, he knows so much. He right. doesn't even know Branson's going to put a repair shop on his property. <laughs> the Dowager says he's on an inspection tour of the North, and Lord Grantham says that seems sensible. Again, great sentiment to include in this scene. <laughs> The Dowager wants them to listen to their argument about the hospital. Lord Grantham asks what the point is, and the Dowager says that one word from Westminster would stop the scheme. Lord Grantham wants to know why he'd say the word or even come to visit, but it turns out that Lord Grantham's father was Mrs. Chamberlain's godfather. Uh, Lord Grantham says that nonetheless, the Dowager has no more chance than a cat in hell without claws. Are any of those things possible or necessary? <laughs> right. Is there a movie called All Cats Go to Hell? Without their claws? <laughs> all claws go to heaven? All cats go to hell? I smell a sitcom. <laughs> Get Jim Parsons on the phone. I wanted to play the claws. <laughs> I'm not sure a cat would stand that much of a chance even if they had claws. I mean, it's hell. Yeah. I'm pretty sure the whole point of hell is that nobody stands a chance. Yeah. That's why it is hell. Yeah. 
In the kitchen, Hughes tells Patmore that Carson suggested that they have dinner in their cottage and asked for Patmore's advice. So in the wake of Alan Rickman's passing, which I don't even think, did we address that? I think. I think we did. Okay. Um, no, but I rewatched Sense and Sensibility. And yeah. so now every time that I hear the word cottage in here, all I can think of is the uh, other Ferris brothers saying, a cottage. <laughs> I'm Excessively fond of a cottage. <laughs> yep. I'd build one myself if I had any money to spare. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great movie if you haven't watched it. It is. We endorse it. Possibly one of my top five favorite movies of all time. Wow. I know. It's a bold claim. It is. Uh, nobody ever asked me to back this stuff up. Yeah, I know. I say all kind of crap. It does have Hugh Laurie being awesome. Oh, and Imelda Staunton, who mm-hmm. is Jim Carter's wife. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. I always forget that. Yep. She also played uh, Mama Rose in a recent revival of Gypsy on the West End. Good to know. In the West End? On I don't the know. West End. I don't know. It's a good question. Let's call the whole thing. Patmore asks Hughes when she last cooked, and Hughes says that she's done the odd thing. She made that toast. Yeah. Remember that? I remember the toast. That's good. Yeah. Well done. Patmore says, oh, and as we all know, anyone can cook while rolling her eyes at Daisy, who appreciates it. And then that ghost from Ratatouille says, yes, everyone can cook. Also, I have a son. (laughs) Patmore's like, get out of here. (laughs) Hugh says that it's not her idea, but it might be nice. Daisy says that Patmore's just jealous. Hugh says that she's sure she isn't and leaves. And Patmore says, well, maybe I am. Yeah, you're not jealous. Daisy's not bitter. We're all a bunch of liars. (laughs) At luncheon, Lord Grantham tells Mary that uh, Matthew Good called, uh, which is very confusing the way that this has been written because it looks very like McGee. It does. I'm sorry. Uh, he's going to be in Yorkshire on Wednesday to look at a car and wants Mary to watch him do it. He'll be driving it around some track. And I agree with Mary whose reaction <laughs> is, uh, you know, he yeah. wants me to watch him in a car, yeah. which is, you know, what I should have said when boys wanted me to watch them play video games in college. Yeah. We can't all be Lady Mary. Branson says that he could take her. He'd like to see it. And he also invites Edith. But she says she'll be in London. Lord Grantham says, ooh, (laughs) she has a date. Edith denies it. And Mary says, of course not. (laughs) Which, despite the fact that Edith has been protesting too much, annoys Edith. Yeah. So McGee, spotting this nascent tension, interrupts to say that Dr. Clarkson seems to be coming around to her way of thinking, and that Isabel's bringing him over for a drink with Murdy, a.k.a. Dickie Mert. <laughs> Which is always fun. To them in the know. <laughs> Lord Grantham says, oh, that's why the dowager came. McGee wants to know what she wanted, and Lord Grantham explains. McGee says it's too late to alter his schedule, the Lord Chamberlain's. Right. I'm sorry, Neville, Neville Chamberlain. Chamberlain. Yeah. Very confusing. Yeah. Uh, Lord Grantham agrees, but he says the Dowager thinks otherwise, and McGee asks if it's wrong to hope she's mistaken. In the servants' hall, Baxter sits and reads a note, pondering the Baxter of her ways. Mosley asks what it is, and it's a note from... <laughs> like sand through the hourglass, so past the Baxter of our lives. <laughs> things happened on that show. I know. <laughs> It's a note from Officer Bummer saying he's going to pick her up on Wednesday at 9 to go to York. Mosley asks if she'd like him to come. He can ask for the time off, of course, and she shouldn't have to go to the trial alone. Anna and Bates enter. Anna asks what trial, and Mosley says that Baxter is a witness. Anna thinks that she can go, and Bates thinks that Carson will understand. Uh, great. 
Baxter says that she's just a character witness, but Anna says they can make all the difference, like Lord Grantham's character witnessing got Bates put in jail. <laughs> God, I can't believe how much I miss that guy. You know, like his enemy. Oh, yeah. In jail. V- Vimer? Vimer? Or was that somebody else? I don't know. I don't know. The the Shankin guy. Yeah. Remember the days of the Shank? Yeah. That was a time. Nobody's ever going to get shanked anymore on this show. Mm. We'll see. Maybe Coyle. Yeah, that's a good point. Bates asks why Baxter was called. Baxter's like, oh, I knew the defendant, and Bates keeps prying at it. Thomas comes and asks where Mosley's been. Mosley apologizes. He says that he thought Andy could manage, but Thomas says that's for him to say. Andy comes in then. Thomas invites him to walk to the village, but Andy turns him down. Didn't they need him to do work? Nope. I thought they were about to do some work. <laughs> Lord Grantham welcomes Dickie, a.k.a. Murdy. Isabel says Dr. Clarkson has something that McGee will want to hear. Lord Grantham asks if he's changing his mind. He says, maybe. <laughs> so, not that interesting to McGee? Shocking twist. Lord Grantham asks if Clarkson has told the Dowager Countess about maybe changing his mind. And McGee says not to put him off. Isabel has a message from the Dowager Countess. The health minister will be dining there on Friday. Edith asks how she managed that. Lord Grantham says she must have blackmailed him. Edith says if she can do that, then she can make him condemn the scheme. McGee says that she mustn't and wants the three of them there to support her. Isabel says, aye, aye, Captain, also is wearing oh my a God. horrid, horrid dress. It's awful. It is like a painter's smock and a cheetah skin <laughs> had a horrible baby dress. Yeah. It's so, like, startling. <sighs> I think it's right up there with the St. Valentine's Day. I'm sorry, the St. Patrick's Day Massacre. Yeah, it's really bad. Because I don't think it was supposed to resemble an animal print. It just went horribly wrong and did. In the boot room. In the boot room. (laughs) Andy comes in and Bates asks if Thomas is getting on his nerves. But Andy cuts him off to say, no, 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 it's fine. Anna says he only means to be friendly, which Andy knows, and he says Thomas was good to him at first, but since he has come, he's gotten to know a bit more about Thomas, which he doesn't like to say in front of a lady. Anna's not a lady. <laughs> She's been to prison. That's true. Bates says that they both know Thomas pretty well. Andy says that he wouldn't want to give Thomas any wrong ideas. Anna isn't sure that's fair, and Andy says, fair or not, Andy thinks it's better. He specifies that, obviously, like all working class people in the 1920s, he's very open-minded about homosexuality. <laughs> <laughs> Much like all working class people today. Yeah, naturally. He says, we are what we are, and Mr. Bates agrees. And then Kesha busts in and says, we are who we are. <laughs> Pray for Kesha, everyone. Yeah. Sony, hopefully, is going to have to let her out of her contract on February 19th. Okay. It was supposed to be today. Well. Yeah, but they had to change it because of snowpocalypse. <laughs> At the Carson cottage, Mrs. Hughes clears the table as Carson gives his compliments to the chef. Mrs. Hughes says that's Mrs. Patmore and not her. And she asks what Mr. Mosley was asking. Carson explains and Mrs. Hughes asks if she'll, if Carson will let him off of work. Carson does not see why not for uh, narrative economy reasons. Yeah. And uh, he asks what it's for. And Mrs. Hughes says that Officer Bummer needs Baxter's help. Carson asks if other butlers have to contend with the police arriving every 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Hughes says, not often, and brings the next course. Carson asks if they're done enough. And Mrs. Hughes says, yes, uh, they are lamb chops. I believe, yeah, yeah. 
Carson says it's a pity that the plate is cold. Mrs. Hughes brings over another dish, which is bubble and squeak. And Carson says as a vegetable with lamb. And Mrs. Hughes says that she likes it with lamb. Carson notes that the knife could do with sharpening. And Mrs. Hughes is very annoyed. And rightly so. And uh, for the curious, bubble and squeak is a traditional English dish made over the shallow fried, made of the shallow fried leftover vegetables from a roast dinner. Usually uh, potato and cabbage, but carrots, peas, Brussels sprouts, or any other leftover vegetables can be added. Oh. So I don't know why they specified those three. Yeah. Uh, so the chopped vegetables, and sometimes you'll put chopped meat in there as well. They'll be fried in a pan with mashed potatoes or crushed potatoes. Um, and it is called bubble and squeak because of the bubbling and squeaking sounds it makes during the cooking process. Good to know. So uh, similar to the way Kedgeri is just, you know, whatever's in the ice box. Mm-hmm. This is pretty much the same concept. Okay. Okay. And that brings us to our first recurring segment, Fashion Backwards with our own glassware gladiator, Kelly. All right. So I had a very hard time finding a tie-in here, and this is as best as I could do. Okay. Uh, we're going to be talking about the history of glass kitchenware. Oh. Uh, just because, you know, I was wondering sort of like how, you know, what what... What innovations were happening in the kitchen in 1925? Yeah, yeah. Um, not a ton that we haven't covered. Mm-hmm. But in the year 1915, Pyrex glass baking dishes were invented. Um, so glass itself had been around like the earliest glasses from like 3500 BC. Mm-hmm. Um, and then modern glass, the way that we would think of it, dates to the 17th century. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and... The sort of thing that makes modern glass modern was the addition of lead oxide to the molten glass. And that process was discovered in 1674 by George Ravenscroft. Uh, the next big innovation uh, happened in 1696 after the patent expired on his glass. So at that point... Uh, 27 different glass houses started producing glass. Uh, and then it took the British government, uh, 50 years to impose a lucrative tax on glass. <laughs> so good looking out there, Britain. Imagine people want to see out of things. Uh, however, they repealed that tax then in, about a hundred years later. Okay. So, you know, the haymaking days of glassware <laughs> were essentially over. Um, and then glass started being able to be used as a building material in about 1851. Uh, it was industrialized in the early 1800s. Okay. Um, and this is just to give you kind of a basic sure. overview of how long modern glass uh, had yeah. been around mm-hmm. before Pyrex. Um, and so it was able to be mass produced in 1887. And actually a lot of this happened in Britain, mm. um, it appears. Yeah. That was the Industrial Revolution and all. Right. I keep forgetting about that. (laughs) Anyway, uh, wired cast glass, which we still use today that has sort of those hexagons of wire in it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Less breakable. That was invented in 1898. And that's about uh, the size of it. Okay. Um, there's more info, but we're not focusing only on glass. Right. We are focusing on the Pyrex specifically. So the general info from glass, the general info about glass came from Wikipedia. I actually found a really great Smithsonian.com article about how Pyrex came to be. So 
1914, a woman named Bessie Littleton had a, an earthenware casserole dish. It cracked. And her husband just happened to be working as a physicist at Corning Glassworks, which is now Corning Incorporated mm-hmm. uh, in large part because of what's about to happen. <laughs> and he was like, this shall not stand. Well, mainly she said that. Oh, okay. And so he was making uh, – he was sort of messing around with the formula for glass because what Corning was doing at that time – and now this is actually in New York. Yeah, yeah. This is not in the UK. Right. Um, he was messing around with how to make glass for railroad lanterns and battery jars. Mm. And so her – Bessie asked Jesse – Bessie and Jesse oh. – uh, asked him if the glass that he was working on might work for baking. So he just sawed part of a battery jar off and was like, here, woman. <laughs> so she successfully baked a cake in it and you know, word got around. And in 1915, uh, Corning launched Pyrex which was the very first glassware intended for cooking. Hmm. Um, and so <laughs> Brett Smith, professor of industrial design at Auburn University, claims that Pyrex made people re-examine how they thought about glass and it fueled an interest in more durable materials. Glass became part of a new age of materials and durable glass came to be used in so many things from percolators to windshields. Which, okay, that's uh, two things. <laughs> right. And I just, you know, I guess nobody had ever used glass for cooking. Right. Not sure why Brett Smith couldn't just say that. Yeah. Um, but Pretty up until sure they this. they used glass for windshields before. Right? You wouldn't, yeah. And look, I didn't look it up. Right. So, you know, nuts to me, <laughs> Um, but the point is, nobody had thought of it for that. It was all metal and earthenware, basically, mm-hmm. pottery kind of stuff up until that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they were not the first company to develop temperature-resistant glass. In the 1880s, there was a German scientist named Otto Schott who developed a low-expansion glass called borosilicate glass. Uh, but Corning basically took that concept and created their own borosilicate glass, uh, which... And came up with a much better name, it sounds like. Well, no. They were still calling it borosilicate. They just... Like, that wasn't the brand name okay. for Auto Shots Glass. Oh, okay, sure. And he used that for, like, um, like laboratory uh, oh, glassware, right, right, basically. Right, right. Um, so, yeah. So, Corning developed it. They were selling railroad lanterns. They were like, great. You know, the railroad, <laughs> you know, never, never going out of style. Lord Grantham was like, I agree. <laughs> um, now, they did have some interest, though, in figuring out a way to market glass to consumers. Right. Uh, always with the eye to the bottom line. <laughs> um, so Bessie Littleton's mucking around with her, you know, cake battery jar, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of helps spur that along. And then um, they held the patent for their formula for borosilicate glass from 1915 to 1936. But then they came with a new formula that was an aluminosilicate glass. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Gotcha. So they... Borosilicate is still actually pretty widely produced in Europe, hmm. and it is still the kind of glass that is used for any Pyrex that is manufactured in Europe. Hmm. Um, there's, you know, basically the issue that people are primarily concerned with, depending on what the ingredients in glass are, have to do with durability and breakability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll talk about another development because Pyrex changed their formula again okay. later. Um, but we'll get to that. <laughs> and I love the way that they describe this because it says company accounts suggest that the name Pyrex came from the company's tradition of using X in its glass formulas. Corning's first heat resistant glass was called Nonex. 
Um, and this expert, uh, Regan Brum- Brumigan, uh, is their public services librarian and co-curator of the exhibition at the Corning Museum of Glass, nope. if you're ever looking for a fun day. <laughs> But she says uh, that early ads had the words fire glass printed beneath Pyrex. And I just, you know, advertising is so stupid in <laughs> retrospect. Like every advertisement ever, you're like, really? And it's like, yeah, that worked. Yeah. So they had pretty much the same stuff that you would see today. Casserole dishes, pie plates, egg dishes, custard cups, loaf pans, oval baking dishes, cut glass teapots, and engraved dishes. Uh, in 1925, my personal favorite Pyrex product, the liquid measuring cup, was introduced. Although uh-huh. it looked very different. It had two spouts on opposite sides with a handle in between. I, I don't know why anybody thought that made sense. Yeah. Um, like, didn't we have like a slightly better understanding of physics at that point? Yeah. The products were really expensive initially. Mm-hmm. Um, the borosilicate glass was pretty cost prohibitive in terms of like mass market. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the early ads actually showed a maid and not a housewife using the Pyrex. So obviously it's for your kitchen staff. So, mm-hmm. you know, God forbid the day they make Mrs. Patmore start using Pyrex. <laughs> um, but yeah, but you know, only the very wealthy could afford it in the twenties. So in theory, mm-hmm. if they were pr- uh, producing it in Europe, it's not out of the question that the Crawleys could have been using it. Okay. Um, now, after World War One, that is when home economics actually emerged as a profession. Mm-hmm. And they started applying principles of science to housework, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting because I'd never seen it put that way. Mm-hmm. Because by the time, you know, I got to high school or whatever, home economics is this like stupid, like softball, like regressive, mm-hmm. you know, gender biased class. But in the 1920s, it was very progressive mm-hmm. and it was the idea of making things easier for women at home. Yeah. Um, because, you know, they still primarily were in the home. And so Corning in 1929 hired a full-time scientist and home economic, uh, hired a full-time scientist and home economist who named Lucy Maltby. And she was like the queen of Pyrex. Uh, it says that her influence was so strong that Corning executives had a mantra of what would Lucy think before they would approve anything. Oh. And, you know, she appears to have been very well-spoken and just very passionate about her work. Like, it's very cool to see that they had this woman with a scientific background in there mm-hmm. making a lot of decisions. Yeah. So it was in the 1930s that Pyrex finally became affordable for the general public. Um, and that was basically when mass production mass production became truly automated. Mm-hmm. There's very little manual labor involved. And within about 15 years, um, the economic barrier was broken and everybody was using Pyrex. Mm-hmm. Um, they also, in the 30s, introduced a line of stovetop pans called Flameware. <laughs> uh, Flameo, Hotman. <laughs> and... Uh, Juliet Kinchin, curator of modern design at the Museum of Modern Art, says the glass frying pans produced during that period, uh, they have a certain shock value. Uh, the idea of putting glass in direct contact with heat on a stovetop was an uncomfortable idea. And then, like, you know, you're still putting it in direct contact with heat in an oven. Well. Anyway, I don't have time to get into (laughs) conduction and convection right now. Um... Anyway, so it was sold until 1979. Uh, it was eventually discontinued as Corning came out with more popular products. <laughs> I mean, you know, good on them for producing it for 40 years when nobody wanted it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have to admit, though, just as a visual, thinking about a glass no, pan you on the stove, weird. I do feel unsettled. Yeah. I feel, I feel like I need an adult. <laughs> um, 
And so, you know, the home economics movement uh, was a big champion of food safety and sanitary kitchens. Mm-hmm. So they looked very clean. I mean, obviously you can tell right. versus an earthenware pan when a glass container is clean. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, they played that up in all of their ads, you know, everybody wearing a laboratory style outfit, you know, all in white. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it actually was a cleaner product. Smells wouldn't cling to the glass. Uh, and it didn't rust the way that cast iron and tin would. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they marketed the Pyrex dishes as being able to cook food more quickly, uh, which meant that women could save time and fuel. So, I mean, it's so funny because it's like you think home ec. I never thought about home economics. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I know what you mean. I'm sorry this is really blowing my mind, everybody. <laughs> I'm a child of the 80s. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Um, yeah, and it was uh, positioned as a patriotic choice during World War II oh. because of its efficiency. And they actually um, outfitted an entire line of military messware uh, mm. for the army. And there were ads, you know, with a guy who was saying, oh, my wife sure makes food fight for freedom. <laughs> yeah. Because that's how wars work. Yep. Um, and then, you know, after the war ended, they put all that ingenuity into just colors, yeah. different colors and patterns. And there are all these, you know, collectors who collect these like rare pieces uh, yeah. from the fifties and sixties. Um, and if you go to the Corning Museum of Glass, again, great time bringing the kids. I'm sure they'll <laughs> love it. They have, you know, just the entire history, which is that I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's like you have an actual record and physical objects that you created. Yeah. Which as things go more and more online, you know, that's just not yeah. how things work anymore. Yeah. Um, in the seventies and eighties, uh, they only became more relevant as microwaves were adopted. <laughs> uh, but Pyrex's history is not without controversy. Oh, so in the fifties, they started making Pyrex out of thermally tempered soda lime glass, which is cheaper to produce, uh, rather than the borosilicate glass. Although it just said that it updated to, uh, look, anyway, I don't know. look guys, I don't know anything about chemical compounds because <laughs> I was not great at chemistry. Okay. Um, so apparently in recent years, consumer reports has documented hundreds of cases of Pyrex dishes shattering and injuring users. Uh, but according to Pyrex, the incidents consumer reports can suck it <laughs> more or less. They say that the claims represent uh, only a fraction of 1% of the millions of households that use Pyrex products. Also it is made of glass. Yeah. And even if it's really good glass, like, you know, physics, right. If you I, drop it, it can break. I, I believe it. And glass can hurt you. Yeah. And that is true. Whether it's a borosilicate <laughs> or some other nonsense. <laughs> Um, anyway, but you know, now they have to like recommend like, don't change temperature from hot to cold really fast and be careful when you're putting it in water. I just need to read this final sentence verbatim. (laughs) Criticism aside, it's unusual to find an American kitchen that doesn't include at least one Pyrex product. So thanks for your unbiased opinion, Smithsonian Magazine. (laughs) Yeah, so I found that intriguing as a user of Pyrex products myself. Our kitchen does contain at least one Pyrex product. Uh, Many more than that, in fact. We have many Pyrex products. (laughs) I am brand loyal. (laughs) I know you are, baby. Um... Yeah, so I didn't realize that Pyrex was also a recent development. I think that's just the interesting thing about that interwar period. Yeah, yeah. Is that so many things that we just take for granted came about then, but then it was like World War II stole everything's thunder. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Kelly. 
You're welcome, Tom. <laughs> I've been here all along. That's You sure have. In the dower house, Danker dinks a tray onto the table. <laughs> Dank is a verb. <laughs> Sprat asks if the dowager is in bed, and Danker says yes, but she won't sleep a wink. She's too annoyed because Clarkson is changing sides. Sprat says, tells Danker not to work herself up, but Danker continues working herself up. She says that she and Sprat don't think alike on this or any other subject. At breakfast, Lord Grantham asks Edith when her train is, and she says nine. Mary asks if it's another magazine crisis. Edith says she's interviewing possible editors. Mary says, women. <laughs> Edith confirms and Branson approves. Again, great. Sure. Thanks, Peanut Gallery. <laughs> Edith is so keen for your approval these days. <laughs> Mary asks who the date is with, and Edith continues to insist that it's just a friend. Lord Grantham asks what Branson's up to, and he says he's looking at a site for the garage. Then they'll go look at Matthew Good's car. Mary says that she wants to look in on Mr. Mason, who's moving in. And Lord Grantham says, as long as the pigs are settled. Like, does it matter? I, that's, yeah. Don't you need the pig man? No, they don't need the pig man because of very good reasons. Mary says that she's concerned because pig keeping needs physical strength. Lord Grantham agrees, uh, which is perhaps something you might have wanted to consider before hiring this infirm old pig man. <laughs> Branson says, a day of cars and pigs. What could be better than that? Oh, I don't know. Being a journalist. Right. Uh, Freedom for the family that's still in Ireland. Ah! Nope. Cars and pigs. That's what he cares about. Patmore's packing up a picnic basket. <laughs> Hughes asks who's dining at home, and Patmore explains that they're taking hey, it to uh, Andy. <laughs> boo, boo, boo. Sorry. No, it's... I'm I, not sorry. Yeah, I'm you shouldn't be. sorry. <laughs> Hughes says to wish Mason well and hopes that he gets more fun out of the hamper than Carson did. Daisy asks what was wrong, and Hughes says nothing except that she doesn't seem to cook like Carson's mother. Patmore says that she believes the correct response is to say men and then sigh. That's something like your mom would say. It is. Yeah. Uh, they all laugh as Officer Bummer comes in and Hughes says not to mind them. Daisy goes to fetch Baxter and Hughes tells Officer Bummer to look after Baxter because she might just like literally disappear. <laughs> Sarge, Sarge. I was in this photograph. <laughs> now I'm disappearing. <laughs> we have to go back. Mostly be good. <laughs> Officer Bomber says that they're after a nasty fish and he's bound to thrash about as Baxter arrives and says, and we'll get caught in the spray. Patmore wishes her luck. Yeah, good thing we're definitely foreboding this exciting scene coming up. Uh, spoilers. <laughs> out on some road, Branson describes how we lay out the repair shop and Mary says they ought to look at costs and they head back to the car. She thanks him for coming, and Branson says Matthew Good won't want him there. Mary says Branson has more in common with Matthew Good than she does. Branson asks if it's serious. Mary says that he's attractive and nice, and it's good to remember that she's a youngish woman. But that's all. She says she doesn't want to sound snobbish, but she won't marry down. Branson asks if Matthew was special that way, and Mary's like, duh, he was the heir. Yeah. God, what an idiot. <laughs> She doesn't want to be grander or richer than her husband, and Branson agrees that it's important to be balanced. He just doesn't think it has much to do with money or position. Doesn't it now? Right. Uh, he says that his match with Sybil was uneven to everybody else, but not between themselves. Mary says that she thinks the family sees that now. Well, that's good news for Sybil. Yeah. Have fun riding <laughs> that unicorn in heaven. <laughs> She's doing fine. Yes, yeah, she is. In the village, Carson walks along, minding his own business, and then he tips his hat to Denker and says good day. 
Dinker asks how he could say good day to her after throwing over the Dowager when she's been running this village since Clarkson was eating porridge in the glen with his mummy. Uh, Clarkson doesn't believe he has to justify himself to her, and he always ate his porridge indoors. <laughs> Dinker says that he can't justify himself and asks if he calls it gratitude because she calls it treason. Clarkson says that he calls it impertinence, and she hasn't heard the last of this. Well, she's not done, is she? <laughs> she could keep going. She could she's keep going. She's filibustering Dr. Clarkson <laughs> in the very village. In the kitchen, Mrs. Hughes says that Mrs. Patmore looks chirpy, and she says they'll have fun. She's also had news that they've nearly finished the work on her house, the one that she's planning to rent out as a B&B. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Hughes says that was quick. Mrs. Patmore says it didn't feel quick. And Mrs. Hughes says now she just needs to find some customers. In what we assume is the York Courthouse. Do you want me to do this section? <laughs> if, if you like. It seems like you're going to blow a gasket. <laughs> In, presumably, the York Courthouse, Baxter walks up to Molesley and asks if he heard. Molesley says that he changed his plea? Yes. He supposes that once he heard Baxter had turned up, Coyle knew it was pointless. He asks how Baxter feels. She says, sort of relieved, but she'd also kind of looked forward to confronting him. And now it all feels a bit anticlimactic. Oh, does it? Like, this is... He's look, a lot of plot lines on this show have fizzled out, but this was an entire build up to a scene that never happened. Like it's like he's doing an experiment at this point to find the most possible pointless way to what spend our if time. We are the control group. <laughs> Maybe if we were watching the PBS broadcast, the scene would have actually been in there. <laughs> Maybe so. Oh my god. Molesley jokingly asks if he should go in and tell Coyle to plead not guilty. She says no. We don't even get to see Coyle. I bet he was hot. I know. I hear he was a handsome devil. (laughs) Lucky tyke. (laughs) Pig Farm, Mason tells Patmore that it does him good to see a friendly woman bustling about the kitchen. She says she has tea for them all and a snack for later, and Mason says that she's an angel of mercy. Mary and Branson enter, and Mary asks if they're interrupting, and Mason says no, because they're rich. She says they just wanted to see how they were doing, and Daisy can tell him where to find their office. Why would Daisy know where that office is? Isn't she always indoors? She's always seemed to be. Mason says that Daisy will be a great help to him. Mary says they wanted to discuss the pigs. Now, they understand he has a lot of experience. Mason (laughs) Mason agrees that he's top at pigs. Branson says that Mary is worried about the physical side of it. Mason says that it's strictly a platonic relationship. (laughs) (laughs) No, he asks if it's because he's older than he was. And Branson says that, well... You mean before (laughs) this plot line? (laughs) Yeah. Branson says, well, maybe he's already chosen a farmhand to help him. And Andy chimes in to say they've discussed it and they'll help out when possible. They will plan the pigs' lives around when Carson can give Andy the day off. Mary says that that's very good of them. And Andy says he wants to learn as much as he can about farming because he's obsessed with it. (laughs) Mary is understandably confused, but says that that seems to settle it and they head out. Everybody gives Andy a look because he's acting like he has had a stroke. Uh, But he says he really does want to learn. In some fancy London park, Edith is wearing a heinous outfit. Yeah. When asks why Lord Hexham spends so much time in Tangiers, Bertie supposes he likes it, which is kind of a dumb answer. (laughs) 
Edith says that she wouldn't think she'd ever want to leave Brancaster. And Bertie agrees, but says that Hexham isn't really a country type. More arty than sporty, if you know what I mean. Uh, Edith does not understand <laughs> and asks if he hunts or shoots. Bertie says he paints. Edith asks what he paints. Bertie says the young men of Tangiers, mainly. Edith finally gets the message. <laughs> yes. Uh, Before Bertie had to say, after he paints them, he shags them. <laughs> ah! So he's a friend of John Waters. <laughs> Bertie says, uh, you know, then he's like, oh, you know, scenes of local <laughs> life. You know, gay pride parades. Yeah. Which we have in the 20s because it gets better. <laughs> uh, quick note about Tangiers. One thing I was looking up to see if I could find anything interesting about it. Not a lot, but it was in this period not technically part of any country. It was an international zone because Oh, France- so he couldn't have been prosecuted for buggery. Presumably, yeah. Because France and Spain couldn't agree over who got to control it, so they kind of agreed to share Typical it. France and Spain. Yeah, and it stayed that way up through 1956, and in the 50s, a lot of, like, American, uh, you know, alternative lifestyle types. Not not just gay people, but just... I know. would imagine communists. Yeah, writers, weirdos. Yeah. They, they all hung out there. Cool. Uh, the Naked Lunch uh, by Burroughs, what's yeah. his name, was... William Burroughs. ...was mostly written there. I almost had a Naked Lunch once. <laughs> it was this week. <laughs> <laughs> but instead i decided to wear my bathrobe <laughs> good story yeah <laughs> edith asks if is she asking if birdie wants to no, the, okay yeah. edith asks if lord hexham has ever wanted to marry and birdie says it's always been sort of understood that he'll marry his cousin eventually yeah and edith wants to know if that's understood by whom and birdie says uh by the parents yeah. and edith says how romantic which uh flash to Baron Julian, <laughs> that was exactly what everybody expected out of Mary and old dead Patrick. Right. The old iceberg Patrick. <laughs> and, you know, Edith was there to pick up the slack if it didn't work Yeah, out. she was. She's like, I'm on deck, you know. <laughs> Which is not the kind of thing you want to say to somebody who died on the Titanic. <laughs> right. Edith asks if Bertie likes the Lord Hexham and wouldn't want to do something different than be the estate agent. But Bertie says that he likes Brancaster and he's fond of cousin Peter, who hasn't a nasty bone in his body. Well, <laughs> huh? except for every afternoon in Tangiers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tangiers. That is one gay lion. <laughs> I know. That's all I can think about. Edith asks if Bertie's busy that evening and invites him to her flat for a drink, and then they can go somewhere else. Bertie says it's a very racy plan, and Edith says it's not as racy as all that, but she would like his opinion, and he says she'll have it, and possibly his own angry bone. (laughs) See, forget the lovely bones. I would have much rather read the angry bones. (laughs) Yeah. Like, that guy raped me! (laughs) Yeah, about a dead young girl who's pissed. (laughs) Just sitting there being lovely. (laughs) Fuck some shit up, dead girl. <laughs> Auto racing. Woo! Matthew Good and some other guy are racing each other. Uh, looking on, Mary tells Branson that Charlie will beat Matthew Good again, which infuriates him. Branson says that Mr. Rogers is a good driver. Mary says that they take such risks. And Mr. Ri- Rogers says, won't you be my neighbor? <laughs> Sorry. No, that's fine. Rest in peace. <laughs> Mary says that they take such risks and she hates it. Branson says that there's no such thing as slow motor racing, but Mary, quite rightly, doesn't care. Uh, he also adds that there's no such thing as safe love. Real love means giving somebody the power to hurt you. And Mary won't concede that easily. Why is he 
so convinced that she's in love with him? Is he fucking Yenta all of a sudden? Is he goddamn Dolly Levi? Because Brian Fellows pulled him aside in the same conversation where he told Andy that he loved farming and Mason that he was a pig expert and he was just filling them all in. It's like he's writing fan fiction from like season two onward. Because <laughs> it's just like none of it makes sense. There's a bunch of plot holes. People are in comments bitching. <laughs> like, I just, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. And again... So Mary's just watching two dudes racing around in cars as if her husband, presumably the love of her life, yeah. we've been led to believe, mm-hmm. the father of her son. That's right. She's just like, oh, yeah, I'll definitely watch this extremely risky behavior and not have any kind of stress-related incident about it. Yeah. And, uh yeah, Branson's like, uh you know... And nor should she. He's yeah. like resentful at the idea that she might be upset by it. So ridiculous. You remember when you were best friends with Matthew Branson? God. Yeah. Well, you know what'll settle us down? More auto racing. <laughs> yeah. Woo! Yeah. Uh, and Matthew Good wins, I guess. He tells some guy that the car went well as they're getting out of the cars, and Charlie claims to have started late, but Matthew Good says he does a bad that he's a bad loser. Mary says, how fast? And Matthew Good says, that's the idea. Also, Baron Julian, I just feel like he wonders, what who? Let's get Matthew Good on the show and cover his beautiful face in auto glasses the whole time. (laughs) 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 Yes, we'll film a bunch of auto races. Do you know how to film auto racing? Not at all! (laughs) No, because it's not not well filmed. Like, you have no idea what's going on. Yeah, yeah, and then like this is their Nolan Batman movie. Yeah, and then there's this deep auto racing analysis by Mary. who's like, how fast? Like, great. Don't quit your day job. I haven't got one. <laughs> Branson asks if he'll take the car to Brooklyn's. He says Brooklyn's and other tracks, and he thinks he's found his new car. Charlie says that the car must be good to beat him. (laughs) Branson says, well, they must celebrate. Matthew Good suggests a pub. Charlie has to go, but Matthew Good agrees to this pub plan. Uh, He steps away for a second, and Branson tells Mary that she doesn't have to marry him, but she does have to let him enjoy this moment. I hope this isn't what I sound like when I get drunk and start giving people fucking, like, relationship advice, which I always do. Yeah. I always do. Always. Yeah. Like... If you're my friend and we've ever gotten drunk together, I'm like, okay, like I'm not gonna like, tell you what to do, but <laughs> here are the following six steps you need to follow. <laughs> Although usually I'm like, maybe you don't, maybe you don't get married. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, dear Rummy, that's my name. <laughs> Pigs grunt. <laughs> Pigs and ducks and geese <laughs> better scurry when I take you out in my pig farm. <laughs> pig farm this- with the pig on top. <laughs> hey, get that pig down from there. They're my pigs. <laughs> Anymore. <laughs> anyway, pigs grunt as Mr. Mason mo- mocks. Yeah. Walks. With Andy, Mrs. Patmore, and Daisy, Mrs. Patmore asks Andy if he's nervous. He says he's looking forward to it, which I guess I think he means prizing the pigs off of each other <laughs> and removing the piglets from their mothers, which, which is sounds specifically, horrible. Yeah, those what's specifically what he's been asked to do. We glossed over that. 
Mr. Mason says he'll make a pig of him yet. You better hope that farm's not got a pig man curse. <laughs> and he'll lend Andy some books on pig care and breeding, and it makes the work more logical. So it's pig economics. <laughs> That's right. Pignomics? <laughs> By Malcolm Gladwell. Hognomics. <laughs> Edith's secretary tells some applicant that they'll be in touch. Edith asks how many more, and the secretary says just one, Miss Edmonds, and she comes in. Edith says that she's been reading about her achievements and notes that she was born in 92. Miss Edmonds says she might seem too young to be an editor, but she does have experience. And Edith was, she was just going to say that they were born in the same year. Boy, what a time. Did you have to put your date of birth on a resume? I think that's very plausible. That's insane. Uh, so now this does help us out, though. Edith, 33, just to orient everybody. So Mary is... 35, I think? Yeah, 35, 36. I feel like she's two years older. Okay, yeah, I think it seems about right. And so Sybil would have been, I think, 30 or 31. Yeah. Aw. Let's not talk about Sybil again. No, we, we had enough of this. that. Yeah. She shows Miss Edmonds the latest issue and explains how she produced it. Miss Edmonds asks if she's sure that Edith needs her because she knows how to flatter her potential employer. Edith says yes, but she has proved that she's old enough to be an editor at any rate. And Miss Edmonds says 1892 seems a million years ago now. It was 33. <laughs> That's right. Edith says that that might be worth exploring. Victorian babies grown into modern women, Miss Edmonds adds, and the price they've paid. The secretary, Audrey, I finally got her name now, brings in tea, and Miss Edmonds and Edith are clearly... They're, they're uh, clicking. What price have they paid exactly? Well, now they have to own this magazine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Your son owns a factory. <laughs> I live above a pig farm and below another pig farm. <laughs> All of the titles from the whole series from now on to be about pig farm. It may not happen. We might have better ones. Yeah. Man, people love they, they paved no, they pig farm and put in a parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> Back in pig farm. <laughs> Everybody, if you had told me. In series one of Downton Abbey, that we would be spending a significant portion of the final two seasons on a pig farm. Yeah. I would have said you were crazy. Yeah. Possibly reconsidered our commitment to this show. Right? Like, I do, like, if somebody came back, you know. Yeah, if somebody came to us at that time and was like, this is what's going to happen. It's hard to say. But we're completists. We you are. Know? Like That's Rachel Schuchert. Yeah. Who used to recap Smash. Yeah. Mr. Mason wishes Daisy would live at Pig Farm. He says that she could still work at the big house, but make a home with him. Daisy doesn't know because now that she has the pig farm, she has forgotten that she owns a farm. <laughs> That's right. Mr. Mason says that it's just a 20 minute walk and Daisy says that she'll have to think about it. Andy chimes in to say he wouldn't have to think long. This place is like heaven to me. God, we get it. Mrs. Patmore says that he never set a foot off of pavement for 18 years, and now he's all thirsty for harvests and pig farming. Andy says not everyone's right for what they're born to. Mr. Mason agrees and hands Andy the books. He says they'll give him the grounding if he's serious. Andy says he is, and Mrs. Patmore, importantly, yeah. pours more tea. Well, that's what she cares about. In the library, McGee tells the kids that Mummy and Daddy and Edith are all away, so they must make do with Granny and Donk. 
Subi asks if Granny Violet is a Red Indian, and Donk asks why she says that. George- because Baron Julian wanted to make sure we all knew that people were still racist. <laughs> George says that Nanny said that she was on the war path. McGee takes the kids over to some books she's pulled out and says that they are some of the places that she and Donk have visited. Lord Grantham says that Chamberlain's off is called to confirm his dinner plans. McGee wishes that he wouldn't, but she's already lined up the opposition. Lord Grantham says it's a nuisance. The Dowager is not a good loser, and McGee says she hasn't had much experience at it. Lord Grantham asks if McGee could possibly back off and let the cards fall where they may, but McGee says she's striven to let the Dowager have her own way for 30 years, but this is too important. She understands that the Dowager's motives are honorable, but she is damaging people's lives. Then Lord Grantham grabs his stomach again and sits down. McGee says she could cancel. He is allowed to be ill. Lord Grantham says that he is not ill enough, and anyway, the Dowager would just reschedule it. Sibby asks what something is that she's pointing at, and Lord Grantham says that it's the Sphinx, a creature of secrets that she never reveals. And McGee says, rather like Granny Violet. Um, these kids are real cute in this. They are. They're very cute. Also, the Dowager's pretty loud. Yeah. She's not that much like the Sphinx. Also, I like how it's Granny and Granny Violet. Yeah. I have to say, full marks all around for the grandparent names. Agreed. Agreed. At the Dower House, Isabel asks the Dowager when she'll get to dinner, and she says not much before eight. She wants to be in possession of the room when Chamberlain gets there. The Dowager reads a note that Isabel brought and is worked up and sends Spratt to fetch Danker. Isabel says that she's agitated, and the Dowager says that Danker has disgraced herself, and she'll have to find a new maid. Isabel is not super worked up. Well, no. She doesn't have a maid, so she's like, okay, great. Yeah. Danker enters and asks, and the Dowager asks if she called Clarkson a traitor. <laughs> Isabel says, surely not. But Danker says she thought that he behaved badly towards the Dowager. The Dowager says it's not her place even to have opinions of her acquaintance, let alone express them. Mm-hmm. Danker says he can't claim her friendship now, but the Dowager says if she withdrew her friendship from everyone who spoke ill of her, her address book would be empty. The Dowager says that she's read too many novels, seen too many movies. She means Danker. Yeah, the yeah. Dowager has only read one novel. <laughs> and I forget which one it was, but she mentioned it by name. No, I remember. Um, and zero movies. And Danker says she was sticking up for the Dowager. And the Dowager says for that, she will write her a tepid character, which may enable her to find other employment. But she must go. She can stay the night, but must go in the morning. Danker leaves, and Isabel says she can't believe Clarkson would wish her to lose her position. The Dowager says then she shouldn't have sent the note, that he shouldn't have sent the note. When we unleash the dogs of war, we must go where they take us, which I think, I think there's some transference going on here. I think there may be. And as much as I hate Danker, like, this is not Danker's fight. Like, she shouldn't have involved herself, but nor should the Dowager be reacting in this way. I mean, my reaction when she confronted Clarkson was, uh, if I may quote, you must be out of your goddamn mind. If you think this county's going to bring the hospital to the brink. (laughs) (laughs) At the pub, Matthew Good brings around and says that there was a queue. Branson says that this pub is popular. That's a good sign. Matthew asks if Branson knows the place, and Branson says no, and Mary says that uh, they'll laugh, but she's hardly ever been in a public house. Never seen the inside of a public blimp. <laughs> Matthew didn't like pubs much, and Lord Grantham goes to the Grantham Arms about once a year. Matthew Good says his life is a rougher affair. Mm, I bet it is. Mary, yeah. He can crank my stick shift anytime, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I do. Okay, great. As long as we're on the same page. <laughs> 
Mary says, consider her warned. Branson says that the car is the success. Matthew Good says, yes, we've already established that. And Branson should drive it sometime. Branson hopes that's a real offer. He loves cars as much as Andy loves pigs. (laughs) (laughs) You mean suddenly without cause? (laughs) Yeah, that's not fair. He's loved cars for a while. Well, I don't know that he... He's never been on record as loving them. Yeah. He's been on record as being good with them. Yeah, that's a good point. Matthew Good says if he'd known, he would have let Branson drive for today. Uh, Branson asks if Matthew knows that he came to Downton as a chauffeur. As a chauffeur, Matthew did know, but he says not every chauffeur has a real love of cars. Matthew mentions that Evelyn Napier was talking about Mary the other day. Who? <laughs> He's still single, and Matthew Good suspects that he is pining for her. Mary says that he'll pine in vain. His contract was not renewed. Matthew Good says, ah, la belle dame sans merci. Branson asks what that means. So that's a little bit of class shaming there. Yeah. That is actually a Keats poem. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite poems. Also inspired one of my favorite paintings. I forget. It's actually like, there's a shocking number of paintings of it. It's uh-huh. basically this woman who's like, hey, hey, knights. <laughs> hey, come hang out with me, knights. And then she destroys their souls. Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> 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 I think it's cool. I know you do. My mom thinks the Bill Sans Mercy is cool. She doesn't. No. She'd be like, Kelly, that's awful. <laughs> um, Waterhouse? Is that who it is? I think that sounds right. I don't know why I can't find the it's name. Some guy. I'm on my phone. It's I feel not like helpful. He one of the pre Raphaelites. Yes, be- John William Waterhouse. Okay. And the painting dates. 1893 okay so suck it keats that's right anyway that's my favorite painting Mm -hmm. which is probably pretty basic but it's a little bit but it's been your favorite since you were young enough to be basic (laughs) it's been my favorite since i was young enough to want to destroy men's souls (laughs) which was pretty young anyway uh, matthew good says that it means mary knows what she's about i.e destroying men's souls and mary says too right (laughs) Matthew suggests that they all have dinner next time Mary is down south. Branson says that they're funny, having to make excuses for why why they'll meet, and asks why they can't just say they'd love to spend more time with each other. Mary says that if Branson feels that way, he could have fucking stayed in Boston. (laughs) (laughs) She does not say that. (laughs) No. She says that Branson may have assimilated in some ways, but he still fights playing by the rules. (laughs) I Guys... I know that we pretty much read these verbatim to you, but I cannot express to you the sheer joy that I occasionally feel when just reading these recaps when Tom does them because of the things that he writes, such as. (laughs) I can't say it if I have to look at your dumb pig face. Andy stares at a pig book, troubled. (laughs) Thomas asks what the books are. Andy explains. Thomas asks which he'll start with. Andy says the red one. Thomas asks who the red one is by. Andy hands it to him. Thomas reads the author's name, F.J. Connell, and asks if that means anything to Andy. Andy says not a lot. Thomas hands the book back and leaves. Incidentally, F.J. O'Connell, I think, was an actual author of livestock books. Okay. But it's hard to track down right because i had looked and but thought I that i didn't that was see like any livestock, but the, like short horned and then i drifted off <laughs> right <laughs> we are not as fascinated as andy we certainly are not by the fat stock of the world fat stock fat stock <laughs> fat stock need this 
in Edith's flat, Bertie says it must be the most sophisticated room he's ever been in. Hasn't well, I guess sophisticated isn't the same as bloody rich. Yeah, that's like, true. Don't you live in that house? Yeah. Uh, Edith says that the taste is all Michael's, and I mean, you know, it's mm-hmm. a damn nice flat. Oh, we yeah. all agree. Bertie asks if she'll live there, and she says that she thinks she'll live there more. She'd like a life away from Downton. Bertie asks if that's because she likes London, and Edith says that Downton is all Mary's now, more than Lord Grantham realizes, and it's time for her to strike out in her own direction. Bertie asks when she's going home, and Edith says tomorrow. She's found a new editor, and they've got a government minister coming on Friday. Bertie says that's swanky, and asks if Lord Grantham is political. Bertie says, not at all. It was the dowager that invited him. And Bertie says, that's impressive. Edith agrees and asks if they should go. Bertie helps her put her coat on. And Edith says that she loves the Café de Paris. Bertie says he knew they'd love the same things. And they kiss. Ooh. Yeah, it's actually very nice. It's very solid. Oh, know. yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Branson's not there, you know, <laughs> capering about like an annoying monkey. <laughs> and Yeah. No, they, they they've got some actual chemistry there Bertie says what a relief i thought i might be pushing my luck and she says no Bertie says he supposes she knows how much he likes her and edith says that he doesn't know her Bertie says he knows or my terrible secret <laughs> yeah Bertie says he knows enough to think about her all the time and that he hasn't much to offer edith says he has a great deal to offer and she's not sure she's worthy of it but for now they should just enjoy dinner and dancing and Bertie agrees in the kitchen, Mrs. Hughes asks Mrs. Patmore if it was a good day, and she sings that Ice Cube song. Yeah. She messed around, got a triple-double. Mrs. Hughes says Daisy fought hard for Mr. Mason, and Daisy says, if not always very sensibly, which, okay, way to become self-aware after the fact. Yeah. Mrs. Patmore says that Mr. Mason's a lovely chap and adds that he wants for Daisy to live there and that he must be lonely. Daisy says that he isn't. He's just lived on his own for years. But Mrs. Patmore points out that he enjoyed their company that day. Daisy insists that he was just being polite. And Mrs. Patmore shakes her head and leaves. And Mrs. Hughes tells Daisy she mustn't mind when Mr. Mason makes new friends. Daisy says, of course, she doesn't mind. She just thinks he's fine as he is. Carson comes in and asks if Mrs. Hughes is ready to walk to the cottage. Then thanks Mrs. Patmore as she walks in for the dinner. He adds that if he wonders if she might go through the cooking of it with Mrs. Hughes next time, it's been a while since she played with her patty pans, and she's got some catching up to do. And he asks if he... He asks Hughes if she would be glad. He asks Mrs. Hughes if she would be glad for the help, and she agrees through clenched teeth, and he is oblivious to the fact that he's being a raging douche. Yeah. Although, I mean, honestly, it's one of the more historically accurate yeah. portrayals no, this is... of white male entitlement in the whole series. Yeah, this very much makes sense. I actually remember when we were considering a spec episode from, I think, after season, when, whichever season that uh, Anna and Bates got together, uh-huh. they were going to have some similar conflicts. At the Dower House, Spratt tells Tanker that he's sorry, but he doesn't see that he has a role to play. Spratt asks if she was drunk, and Denker angrily denies it. You know it. what? I wish they had kept Denker drunk. Oh, like, remember? Yeah. Like, I didn't like that particular plot line, but right. it's like just the fact that she was like this crazy boozer and nobody <laughs> knew. Like, more of that, please. Yeah, that's fun. Denker asks if she's to blame for her passionate nature. Brat- Spratt says any more of that, and he won't be able to sleep. You should be Spratt for Halloween. <laughs> Denker says that he won't... No, I guess I would have to be Denker. Ugh. I don't want to dank. Forget it. Kelly don't dank and your Tommy don't spread. <laughs> Just punctuating everything with farts today. That's great. 
Dinger says that Spratt won't sleep a wink if she's still sacked when they go upstairs. Spratt says that's a risk they'll have to take and pointedly raises his newspaper in front of his face while singing Molly Malone. Well, yeah, that settles it. <laughs> in their bedroom, in the bedroom, Lord Grantham tells McGee that he's dreading the dinner on Friday. McGee says they all are. Lord Grantham is afraid that the Dowager sees this as the last big fight of her life, and if she loses, there'll be hell to pay. McGee says then there'll be hell to pay, which mm-hmm. is a very reasonable reaction. Nice. Lord Grantham says he's also feeling rather rough. He's sure it's just indigestion, but he'll be glad to put his feet up. So they're clearly telegraphing something horrible. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I don't know. Like, people have been like, oh, like, is the Dowager going to die? Is Lord Grantham going to die? Uh, one or both? Is it people going to die? Another car crash, perhaps? <laughs> McGee says it's too late to cancel the dinner, but she could manage without him. And Lord Grantham says the Dowager would just say he ratted on her and he'll get through it and then take things quietly for a few days. In the upstairs hall, Thomas hears a noise and opens a door to see Andy picking a lamp up off the floor. <laughs> He asks how that happened, and Andy says that he threw a book. Thomas says, oh yes, the red one, and asks why he threw it. Andy doesn't answer, and Thomas comes in and asks again, and then says that uh, he can't read, can he? And Andy says, no, he can't. Go ahead and laugh about it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you meant Thomas? (laughs) Right. Sorry. Thomas says that he's not laughing and adds that Andy's been good at hiding it, flicking through his magazines. Andy says that he just looks at the pictures. Thomas asks why he didn't learn in school, and Andy says that he fooled around until it was too late. He learned how to sign his name, which was all he needed in service. Wait, that's a real shitty school. Yes, it is. Thomas says now Andy wants to be a farmer, and Andy says that he could be a farm laborer, but he wants more. And he can't do that without reading, so another dream goes west. Like, I mean, if that dream is going west, it could be very successful. Yeah, look how it worked out for Fievel. <laughs> Thomas says that it doesn't have to. He could teach him to read and write. Andy says, no, he must be too stupid. But Thomas says, that's not true. Andy's a clever lad and he'll get the hang of it. Andy asks what the others will say. And Thomas says that they won't tell them. And they'll talk about it more in the morning. He gets up to leave. And Andy says that he hasn't behaved well towards Thomas and he's sorry. Thomas says that he's known worse. I actually enjoy this scene. I do too. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. Don't get excited. <laughs> Don't lose your head. Right. No, but I mean, hey, these are actual characters navigating conflict, mm-hmm. coming to a new understanding, yeah. and uh, with potentially interesting things ahead of them. That's right. So, you know, uh, I'm into that. Yeah. And now it's time for the second of our recurring segments, Tom Repeats History, with our own literacy lummox, Tom. Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so... I was looking into what kind of educational opportunities young Andy might have had. Uh, so I figured he probably was born, let's say, around 1905, just as a random guess. You know, he's young enough to have not been in the war. Uh, it's 1925 now. It seems about reasonable. Uh, so the story starts for me in 1870 with the Elementary Education Act of 1870, a.k.a. Forster's Education Act. Uh, it was uh, sort of promoted by the National Education League that was noting that a lot of people weren't getting any education and was uh, pushed by William Forster, who was a liberal MP, as well as Joseph Chamberlain. If you recognize that last name, it is because it is the father of Neville Chamberlain. Oh, my. Yeah, who was uh, also a liberal MP at the time. Uh, at the time, many, if not most, elementary schools in England were 
quote, voluntary schools, which were schools that were run and partially founded by a foundation, which in almost all cases was either associated with the Church of England or a Roman Catholic church. Uh, but they were also funded by the state as well. And this, so the 1870 Act set up local boards anywhere that there were children who were not receiving schooling, uh, whose mission was to provide elementary education for children 5 to 13. Parents still paid fees for education, but poor children's fees would be paid by the board, even if they went to one of these voluntary schools. Uh, and the board could choose to either make grants to these existing schools or create their own. And they also had the right to make attendance compulsory if they felt like it, essentially. Uh, so by 1873... So they were fascists. Yeah. Uh, in 1873, <laughs> 40% of the population lived in districts where it was compulsory. And that was largely a situation where in urban areas it tended to be compulsory. In rural areas, the farmers that would dominate, because these are all locally elected boards, mm-hmm. would tend not to want the uh, kids having to miss farm work. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, in England, it was like free child care and kept them off the streets. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so then in 1880, it was made compulsory everywhere up to age 10. And in 1891, it was made uh, entirely free, whether it was at a board school or a church school. The board schools were prohibited from religious instruction. And additionally, parents had the right to withdraw their children from religious education, even at the church schools. Whoa. Yeah. So that was wow. a, a big part of what was That's going on. very unlike America. Mm-hmm. And so that was a lot of what was going on there. The motivation behind it was, A, that some people weren't getting schooled at all, and B, the ones that were were being forced to be religious. Mm-hmm. And so the Liberal Party had a lot of nonconformists, you know, whether not necessarily atheists, but just people like Baptists yeah. or other people that didn't like either the Church of England or the Roman Catholics. And didn't want their kids learning from them. So Puritans. Yeah. Uh, so in the first ten so years, so it was like America. <laughs> in that sense, yes. But uh, you know, there was they were just really wanted to keep religion out of the schools as much as possible, which wasn't much. Like most of the schools were still associated with a religious institution, mm-hmm. and still instructing in religion. It was just you could withdraw if you wanted. Okay. To. Uh, so they started or took over three to four thousand schools in the first ten years. Now, at this, so that was elementary school, uh, like I say, children 5 to 13. But at this point, the responsibility for any kind of secondary education became very confused because a lot of these boards, who were all kind of independent, uh, began uh, offering it and paying for secondary or technical education, trade school type things. But since that wasn't their original original mission, their jurisdiction was very unclear. Uh, and a lot of times, overlapping authorities would claim funding for educating the same populace. There were, uh, in fact, a total of 2,568 school boards in England, many of them with separate school attendance committees. So that was a lot of confusion going on there. Uh, and not only that, there were still 14,000 voluntary schools, which had never wound up being associated with any of the boards. And at this point, they were getting very little funding at all because that had all become routed through the boards, but they were still educating a third of all children. And so the whole thing finally fell apart in 1901 with the Cockerton Judgment. Um, that is an unfortunate <laughs> name for a judgment. Yes, it is. From now on, all of my judgments will be Cockertons. <laughs> That's right. Cockerton says, nay. <laughs> but what this Cockerton said was essentially that all use of government funding to educate anyone over 13 was illegal. What? Yes. This was a shock to the many 13-year-olds who were being educated. <laughs> oh, my God. What? Why would you say that? Because that was not, you know, that was not what the funding was originally designated oh for. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
So something had to be done at this point, and as it happened, the conservatives were now in power, and they had always been against the school boards anyway, since they had always been explicitly intended to undermine the church. Uh, And there was a a very strong church party at this time in England. You know, this is just, I mean, this is the very end of the Victorian era. This is, the Boer War is just wrapping up, still going on. Uh, and so the, the conservatives were in alignment with a lot of very imperialist people who didn't necessarily agree with them on a lot of social issues, but agreed that England was awesome and authority was awesome. So the conservatives came up with a plan, uh, and this turned into the something or other act of 1902, uh, that was going to, you know, basically eliminate all these local school boards. Uh, unfortunately, one of the secretaries in their own government opposed this plan. That secretary, Joseph Chamberlain. Oh my god. Who had, in the intervening time, become a conservative. I was wondering why on earth mm-hmm. the dowager would be the godmother of his child if he was in the liberal party. Right. And it's because, like a lot of people who started off liberals... He was a flip-flopper. Well, and what happened was they were like, yeah, I want the poor people of England to be happy, but I want the poor people of Ireland to still respect the king and the poor people in Africa and India and so forth, you know. So his imperialism trumped his liberal values. And he was actually one of the major forces in government uh, pushing for the Boer War. He's, he's largely responsible for it happening. Uh, he was mainly considered, he was mainly concerned that the bill would destroy the conservative party by driving away the nonconformists who had, you know, joined the party in their hatred of Ireland. Uh-huh. Uh, but who were really dedicated to these local school boards. And he was correct. The party was defeated in 1906 and it was generally considered that their supporting this bill was one of the big reasons that they lost. Uh, All that said, it was probably an improvement on the status quo overall. Uh, It reduced the number of local education authorities to 328, which was much more manageable. Uh, And while it did bring all the church schools back onto equal footing with non-church schools, it also brought them very solidly under government control. They were all subject to standards and all eventually, you know, became, it set the stage for them all to become sort of naturalized and and kind of normalized Mm -hmm. down the road. Uh, so that's basically where we were at as Andy, as Andy was a youth. Uh, school was free and compulsory. Uh, probably a good chance it would have been in some like church related school, but it would have been well funded at that point. Uh, so he really has no excuse. Great. Good to know. But he would have had, he w- the bill was defeated. No, no, no. The bill was passed. So he didn't have to go to school past 13. No, no, no. The, no, no, no. He, the bill that, uh, eliminated the local education boards and created the, you know, brought the churches back into it. Okay. It also restored the ability. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I'm that sorry. was unclear. Somehow I missed, there was a lot of words in there. There was. And I don't think I made that clear, but I mean, that was the whole, the whole reason they needed to pass a bill was to re-legalize secondary education. But you said they had to re-kajigger it? Yeah, they did. Okay. <laughs> they needed some kajiggering. <laughs> um, but yeah. He would have been forced to, I believe, I'm not sure if it was still compulsory to 10 or if maybe older at this mm-hmm. point, but he would have been at least had free compulsory education until age 10, okay. if not later. All right. Well, Andy, good luck reading them books. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. Back to the Dower House. Mm-hmm. Spratt says Danker's up early. Isn't that her job? <laughs> oh, wait, she got fired. I forgot. <laughs> Uh, he asks if she's packed yet, and Danker says no. Sprant says that she shouldn't leave it too long. Danker says if that's all he's got to say, and Sprant says it's not his fault. 
Danker asks if they caught his nephew. Spratt says he doesn't believe so. Danker wonders if that's because he was allowed to rest there, and she thinks it was. She says, Septimus Spratt, which is the only good thing she has ever said, <laughs> is teaching us that Mr. Spratt's name is Septimus. Yeah. If I am sacked, I am taking you down with me, and adds that she didn't commit a crime. Spratt asks what he can do. He can't talk to her before she's dressed. Danker says he can think of what to say while she while she waits, unless he wants to find himself sewing mailbags. Spratt asks what if she doesn't listen to him, and Danker says he'd better hope she does. So great. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, that's like rule number one of Baron Fellows is when in doubt, blackmail. <laughs> yes. Blackmail! <laughs> anyway, it just goes on like that. It does. Anna and Bates leave their cottage. Anna a says, cottage! <laughs> I'm excessively fond of a cottage! Anna doesn't think that Mary is serious about Matthew Good. She has a sense of her own importance. And what would Matthew Good do with Downton? Hang about? Testing his cars? That sounds great. Yeah. I would love to do that. Sign me up. I don't even care about cars. Yeah. Bates says that Matthew Good could get a job. Anna doesn't think that there's a big demand for racing drivers in Thirsk. Are they still down a chauffeur? <laughs> That's a good point. Bazinga! You know where they... That would be quite a reversal. <laughs> you know where they need a racing driver? Hazard County. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Bates says that Mary doesn't believe that love conquers all. Anna says that she is what she is, and she believes she wants somebody who brings as much to the table as she does, but maybe she's wrong. Bates hopes so. He'd like her to be happy because he's happy. Anna asks if he's really happy. He says happier than he's ever been. Anna says... That I mean, granted, they yeah. had a really shitty no, run. That's, that is plausible. Anna says that frightens her. She's still got months to go. Bates says that nothing will go wrong. Anna says bad harvest, bad harvest. Bates asks what that means. Anna says farmers used to shout bad harvest when the crops were good so that the gods wouldn't get jealous. And Bates shouts bad harvest and says that ought to do it. And Anna hopes so. Like cute. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Anna it's, and Bates. It's fine. Yeah. I just I found it. Uh, yeah, I I read that more contemptuously than I actually felt about. I it. I didn't feel that you were contemptuous. I'm just pleased that there is a scene that I didn't hate so close on the heels of the <laughs> other one that I didn't hate. Yeah, or at least that I actually that I actively enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At the Dower House, I guess I'm just at the Dower House forever. <laughs> uh, Spratt walks into the kitchen and says the Dowager wants Danker. Danker asks what she said, and she, he said Danker's crime was an excess of loyalty because he's excessively fond of a cottage. <laughs> Danker says it was Clarkson's smugness that got her goat, and Spratt says that I did not say. <laughs> Danker asks if it worked, and Spratt says he reminded Dower, the Dowager Countess how hard it is to find properly trained staff, and finally says that the Dowager is going to give her one more chance. One last chance. <laughs> he reminds Danker to act surprised. Danker says she'll rival St. Paul in her astonishment and heads up. Spratt says that he doesn't want to hear another mention of his nephew. Danker says that depends on whether or not she needs to mention him again. And then the earth opened <laughs> up and swallowed Danker and all her Freddy's Krueger and dragged them back to hell with the cats with no claws. That didn't that happen. That didn't happen. No. We made that up. <laughs> so sorry, guys. Kind of wishful thinking there. <laughs> the library, the Dowager... We all agree that Danker sucks, though, right? Oh, yeah. No, no. We're fine with that. Okay, great. Yeah. She is obnoxious. In the library, the Dowager asks Lord Grantham if Chamberlain has arrived, and he has not. 
Lord Grantham asks how the Dowager got him to come, and she says the power of personality. Lord Grantham says he doesn't think it would have worked for him. That's true. The Dowager asks if he's feeling well, and Lord Grantham says he'll be fine as long as no one asks how he is. That doesn't even make any sense. I can't even go there. Men. <sighs> Sorry, I laughed instead of, like, derisively. <laughs> right. You know, I barked a laugh, and I didn't <laughs> sigh. Isabel asks Dr. Clarkson if he heard that his note nearly proved fatal to Danker. We wish. <laughs> Clarkson says he only intended that she be ticked off. Isabel gathers that it was Spratt that saved her, which was which is a surprise. And again, I'm not totally sure why we need this scene of the middle class commenting on this activity that didn't matter to anyone. I know. The Dowager is rearranging the seating chart. I'm Lord- arranging matches! <laughs> Lord Grantham asks what she's doing. And the Dowager asks Carson to go change the place cards. Carson says that he's not sure McGee would agree, but the Dowager makes Lord Grantham make Carson do it. So he heads out. Lord Grantham says that the Dowager will be in a junior seat, and the Dowager says, Il faut reculer pour mieux sauter, or however you say that in French, which uh, translates to, you have to step back to jump farther. Edith tells Marion Branson that she found her new editor and went dancing at the Café de Paris, which made her feel young and gay. Branson says they saw Matthew Good try out a race car. (laughs) (laughs) She was using the classical I know. If she wanted to say that, she'd say it made her feel young and arty. (laughs) Uh, Branson says that they saw Matthew Good try out a race car, so now they're all members of the Bright Young Things, (laughs) which I don't think that word means what you think it means. And they're done now, aren't they? I thought uh, they were earlier on for some uh, reason. Uh, well, I think that uh, they may be a little bit behind the <gasps> times. Oh, my. They probably even call it the Twitter. <laughs> Mary says she doesn't know about bright. And I'm like, I think you mean young. <laughs> like, you're all plenty bright. Yeah. Like, even Branson, as much as I... Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He's at least adapted. Yeah. Carson announces Neville Chamberlain and Lord Grantham and McGee greet him. Chamberlain says he wouldn't have the courage to refuse the Dowager Countess, who walks up and asks after his wife, who sends her greetings. The Dowager says how grown up you all are and walks off with him, reminiscing about when they were young and carefree, looking for fun. Chamberlain knows she remembers. And the Dowager Countess says, and the Dowager Countess says she always says to let the past stay in the past. Chamberlain agrees and Isabel walks up and the Dowager reluctantly greets her. Isabel says she gathers that he's there to discuss the hospital plans. Chamberlain says he knows there is a topic the <laughs> Dowager's interested in. Branson, stalwart Irish supporter of the king's government, yeah. offers Chamberlain a drink. And remember, Chamberlain when he wanted, remember when he offered another officer of the government a drink? And it was that, like, pot of, like, shit or whatever. Oh, my God. I completely forgot about that. Yeah. Man, Branson. Anyway. You used to be so cool. hmm Branson says that Chamberlain looked like he needed rescuing. Murdy comes up and warns Chamberlain that he's in for a vigorous debate. Chamberlain wishes that he wasn't. McGee suggests they go in. They don't want to wear Chamberlain out before he's had a chance to sit down. And the Dowager tells Isabel that McGee can't protect Chamberlain in the dining room. Uh, and Isabel says the Dowager will stop at nothing to get her own way. And the Dowager agrees. It is a quality I share with Marlborough, Wellington, and my late mother. I was trained in a hard school, and I fight accordingly. Which would be like a totally awesome statement and a way more worthy debate yeah. than this one. But I enjoyed it nonetheless. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You just always enjoy any references to, you know, British, you know, military dudes. Uh, you know, yeah. In the kitchen, Pat Moore says... In the kitchen! <laughs> 
We've only got a few more episodes left. It's true. Pat Moore says that she's read that Chamberlain might be prime minister someday. So I tried to look up what the state of his political career is at this point. So I can't tell whether Pat Moore reading that is just implausible or whether it's wildly implausible. Maybe she thinks he's that other Chamberlain I keep thinking of. The Lord. It could be. I don't know. Daisy says that Chamberlain is no friend of the unions, and Carson says that he should be congratulated for that. In the servants' hall, Anna asks Baxter how the trial went, and Baxter says, what trial? Anna says she must have a sense of unfinished business, and Baxter agrees, uh, as do we all. (laughs) Anna won't ask what it was about, but she hopes Baxter can leave it behind. Baxter thanks her. Bates comes in and reports that the dowager has the bit between her teeth. How would he know that? Is he allowed in the dining room? Uh, I don't know who's allowed where. He hears things. Anna doesn't give much for Chamberlain's chances, and Baxter says, surely if it's important for the area, he'll want to listen. Bates says he'll just want to get out alive. I think they're severely overstating, like, Like, the mortal danger that he's in. Like, he's a secretary in the government. Like, he, I'm sure he's dealt with some opposition before. It's like my dad used to say in business meetings that he has eight sisters, so nobody can say anything to him that will hurt his feelings. (laughs) I love you, Dad. (laughs) At dinner, the Dowager says the system has worked for a hundred years and asks why they must destroy everything simply for the sake of change. Clarkson why did they change it a hundred years ago? <laughs> Clarkson isn't sure that that's a true representation, and Isabel agrees, says there are many benefits to be had. The Dowager says, for whom? Chamberlain says he thought he was there to be lectured to by a united group, not to witness a battle royal. The Dowager asks if he enjoys a good fight, and Chamberlain isn't sure if he does. You'd think he'd know at his age. <laughs> McGee says that the Dowager has a certain myopia when it comes to other people's point of view, and the Dowager says no, she has a clarity of vision that allows her to resist a housemaid's trap of sentimentality. Isabel says that the Dowager's enthusiasm is getting the better of her manners. Lord Grantham, who asks, who is not looking good, asks if they can stop this beastly row. McGee wishes they could, then Lord Grantham stands up, he says he's so sorry, and then holy shit! Oh my god, you got- <laughs> It's like American Horror Story in yeah. here. He just vomits blood all over the table. Just, and on McGee. And on McGee. Blood, like, yeah. all... Just, bleh. yeah, just like... <laughs> we and can't it's e- simultaneously horrifying and hilarious. Yeah. Just like American Horror Story. <laughs> yes. We we can't even tell you what our feelings were the first time we saw this. Uh, if you're curious, watch the instant take. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Listen to the... I was about yeah. to say read, paint... <laughs> smell. Smell the instant take. <laughs> Taste. Taste the instant take. <laughs> Listen to the instant take. Yeah. Because that is probably a much more keen snap. Yeah. But, I mean, I will say, I had I, forgotten that this was the episode when it happened. Yeah. I mean, I, re- I remember it at some point yeah, 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 but, when I was watching it, but then I was just like, oh my God. Yeah. Like, Don't want to be in the room where that happens. <laughs> no, but everybody is. Oh, man. So yeah, blood everywhere. Uh, Clarkson everywhere it went. <laughs> yeah, Clarkson says to get him on his left side, and Isabel calls for napkins. Carson will call the ambulance, and Clarkson says Lord Grantham's ulcer is burst, and they must get him to the hospital. McGee tells Lord Grantham that she's there, and Lord Grantham says, "If this is it, just know I have loved you very, very much." This fucking show, though, man. I know it'll turn you on a dime. It will. You're like. You know, do an Arsenio Hall arm <laughs> at this fucking blood geyser. <laughs> yeah. And then they'll do something like this. Yeah. And you remember the good times. Yeah. And McGee, very... And you forget all about McBricker <laughs> or Brick Tree. 
Oh, man. I mean, I guarantee Barrett Fellows has forgotten. <laughs> yeah. Mick who? <laughs> Mick G says very clearly and steadily, this isn't it. They won't let this be it. The Dowager offers water, but Clarkson says, no, just keep him steady until the ambulance arrives. Downstairs, everybody's murmuring, and Carson comes down. Mrs. Patmore asks if Lord Grantham is very bad, and Carson says that he's rung for the ambulance and tells Anna and Baxter to fetch the ladies' coats, and Bates can put together some things, but hurry. Mrs. Hughes says she can't believe it. Carson says, life is short, death is sure, that is all we know, which is not super helpful. Yeah, but... He goes off and Mrs. Patmore says that he's been shaken. Everything he based his life on has proved mortal. Uh, didn't he work for the old? I'm anyway. pretty sure okay, did, look, but yeah. we're, let's not parse that right yeah. now. Mrs. Hughes says they have no time for philosophy. How can they help? And Mrs. Patmore says they'll send up some coffee. The ambulance arrives in the front hall. Chamberlain tells McGee that he's not sure how much use he can be. And McGee says, of course, he should go. He says he'll consider the new plan. McGee says to let it stand, she believes the change will work well for both establishments. Chamberlain says goodbye to the dowager, and Edith comes in with the paramedics. McGee tells the dowager not to reprimand her. She doesn't have time to be diplomatic, and the dowager says that she has got enough to worry about. McGee says that there have been too many secrets, and from now on they should have no more of them. The dowager asks if she means Marigold. That's settled, and McGee knows that she's sorry about it. Mary overhears this. Isabel comes in, followed by... I'm not sure actually what McGee does mean in this scenario. I mean, I think she means the secret of Marigold was a very annoying plot device <laughs> that cost us all a pig man. <laughs> I guess that must be it. Uh, Isabel comes in, followed by Lord Grantham on a stretcher, and McGee summons Edith and Mary to go with her. The Dowager asks Edith to telephone with any news, however late. A Murdy will take the Dowager and Isabel home. Isabel says in a moment and tells the Dowager that she's quite pale and she's had a shock. The Dowager says she's had a few shocks that evening. Wasn't it mainly just the one? I think that, yeah. I mean, it was a big one. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We were shocked. Out front, the ambulance pulls away and inside... Branson tells Chamberlain they're bringing his car around. Branson says that the dinner delivered more than he bargained for. You know, just me, an old Irish mechanic, and you, the health minister, here to pick up the pieces. Chamberlain asks if he'll follow them, and Branson says he doesn't want to crowd them. Chamberlain asks if he can let his office know. Branson says, sure, if he tells him why he came tonight. Chamberlain says the Dowager Countess can be very persuasive, and Branson would love to know how she did it. He says his wife's brother is Horace Devere Devere Cole. Branson says the prankster didn't he board a warship pretending to be the leader of a Turkish delegation? Chamberlain says Abyssinian. Uh, The Turk was the one your sister-in-law murdered with her (laughs) vagina, but yes. Yeah, and uh, that is all true. Uh, another thing that he did was he threw a party for a whole bunch of people and waited for all the people there to realize that the thing they had in common was that all of their last names had the word bottom in it. <laughs> <laughs> Which that, I, that's, that's a great prank. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I wish I knew that many people. <laughs> uh, he says that he and some friends dug a trench across Piccadilly, throwing London into chaos. Which is, again, a true story. And Chamberlain says that he was one of those friends, so Branson deduces that the Dowager blackmailed him with it. Chamberlain says that it was long ago, but the papers would make it look bad, and a dinner seemed a price worth paying. His car arrives, and he heads off. Now, that is a great story, and I am pleased that we heard it. However... <laughs> 
This is a man who is no longer permitted in Ireland <laughs> for participating in activities against the British crown. Yeah. If you wanted to keep this out of the papers, this is exactly the type of person your handlers would be like, maybe don't say it to that guy. Just, like, just to be safe. Yeah. Well, they hadn't invented handlers yet. Uh, Carson watches all the cars depart and his shoulders slump and he goes in and closes the front door. In the servants' hall, everybody's brooding. Uh, Carson takes a call in the Carson... is contagious. <laughs> Carson takes a call in the Carson cave and goes in and says that Lord Grantham has had his operation and is resting. Uh, McGee will stay overnight, but Mary and Edith are coming home. Molesley asks, what operation? Carson says that they performed a gastrectomy. Thomas asks what that is, and Carson says that it is no business of theirs. Uh, it might be. What if you need one, Carson? <laughs> Patmore asks if Carson will be... Or, Patmore asks if Lord Grantham will be all right. Carson says that it sounds as if he has a good chance, and everybody's relieved. Bates will see if Lord Grantham needs anything in the morning, and Baxter will take some things for McGee. Molesley will join her. Thomas says that he's relieved. Baxter says, of course, but Thomas says, to be honest, he didn't think he'd mind one way or the other, and he must be getting soft in his old age. That I is just a little moment that I liked because he was just like, I really didn't think I cared about this guy. Rob Collier Thomas, yeah. man. Mm-hmm. He's so good when he's not in that horrible Christmas star movie. <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he says he's getting soft and Mosley says not to let the other animals find out or they'll pounce. You know, everybody there is pretty basic. Yeah. Like nobody does anything. Yeah. Not anymore. He's the only animal left. God, I wish O'Brien would come back. I know. God, wouldn't that be a twist? It would be be a curl of the bang (laughs) upstairs edith says that they should take turns tomorrow so mcgee can rest staying with lord grantham mary says she'll go first stark can take her and come back with mcgee edith says it's a reminder that in one moment your whole life can change mary agrees that it only takes a moment for everything to feel quite different perhaps once again thinking of her dead husband uh no she's thinking of marigold okay sorry Edith says she's going to check on the children. Mary says, of course you are, which is pretty bitchy under the circumstances. They're your children, too. She doesn't care. I know. She's made that clear. All she cares about George is that the estate is now entailed to him. Mm -hmm. You'd think she'd, like, try to build that relationship. (laughs) Branson comes up and asks how Lord Grantham is. Mary says he'll be all right, but it's knocked the stuffing out of him. Branson says he'll have to make sure. We know. We saw the stuffing all over the dining room table. (laughs) Branson says they'll have to make sure the load is lightened when he comes home. And Mary says, to be more precise, they need to take full responsibility for the estate, involve him in the big decisions, but not give him any worry. Isn't that what they've already been doing? I think so. Anyway, Branson says, so long live our own Queen Mary. Good night. Boy, he sure has become a monarchist. He sure has. Maybe the king can't count on his support, but the <laughs> gentry certainly can. They sure can. Which is basically the same thing. I know. I'm sorry. I don't mean to explain radical socialist politics to you. <laughs> in Mary's room, Anna says that she heard Lord Grantham would recover, and everybody was very happy to hear it. She asks if Mary needs anything, and she says she just wants to go to bed. Anna says that she must be exhausted. Mary asks, An- Mary asks Anna if there's any talk in the servants' hall about Marigold, and Anna says everybody thinks she's a lucky little girl. Mary asks if that's all she wants to say, and Anna asks what else she should say. Mary says, never mind. Anna heads out, and Mary looks pensive. Which is a weird place to end this episode. It was, yeah. It's just, the thing with Lord Grantham is so explosive. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it is a show that tends to wrap those kinds of scares up within an episode, so I don't have any problem with that. Right. 
But it's just odd that they chose to tack on this marigold thing at the end. Yeah, it is a little bit. Like, I don't know why that couldn't have cut. I mean, like, I'm fine. Even, well, like... J- the McGee Dowager thing about Marigold is kind of weird. It's kind of weird, that, but... You know, Lord Grantham is, like, bleeding out on a stretcher. <laughs> right. But, like, just that, like, just her hearing it, it's like that Right, then you like planted the could, seed, yeah. and then you could pick that up, but, well, whatever. And, I mean, even when she's like, oh, you know, of course you are to Edith in the hallway. Right, right. I don't know. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah. But now it is time, as always, for the Abbey Awards. That's right. We start off with the worst decision... That goes to Denker yeah. for involving herself in the affairs of her betters. Right. Not because we don't think that people of the lower class should get involved in the affairs of their betters. We just hate Denker. We hate Denker. And just the fact that she thought that there would be no comeuppance. Yeah. And that, that the Dowager would be totally like, oh, yeah, thanks for sticking and up for me. I'm really annoyed with her blackmailing Sprat. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm not saying Sprat necessarily should have, like, harbored his fugitive nephew. Right. But just anything that gives Danker the upper hand over him, I don't... There's only one upper hand, and it should be Spratt. I agree. Uh, next up, we have Best Evasion. And that goes to Coil. Oh, Coil. We never knew you. That's true. I'm not certain he existed. What if Officer Bummer isn't even a policeman, and he's just like this weirdo who's obsessed with jerking the crawlies and servants around? <laughs> <laughs> like, they, you know denied him a position as hall boy <laughs> and he's just been plotting his revenge all these years and staging elaborate you know court themed <laughs> spectacles yeah paying off the newspapers mm-hmm. next up we have worst overbite this goes to carson yeah. who's awfully gd imperious about like the woman who's literally never had to need to know how to cook anything uh-huh. and could not have during the time period reasonably expected that that would ever be something she'd have to do. Uh-huh. Uh, cooking and stuff for him. Here, here. And being very, like, hoity with Mrs. Patmore, uh, in whose contract it is not. Yeah. To cook for these assholes. Agreed. Anyway. Yeah. Very bad form, Carson. Mm-hmm. Next up we have Gibson Girl. And that goes to the Dowager Countess. She looks fabulous in this episode. Yeah. I've been wanting to give her this award on the strength of that hat. Uh, yeah. Like her new jaunty hat mm-hmm. ever since the first episode. Oh, yeah. But Kelly's like the rest been, of the outfits haven't it. been able to like justify it. So in the first scene that she's in, she's in sort of like a dusky take on her signature color of violet mm-hmm. with that hat. It's very streamlined. Yeah. I yeah. really like that they've brought her fashion forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. A bit. Yeah. And, and then she's got a very nice dress on for the dinner with Chamberlain. And then also the scene where she sacks Danker. She's got a nice day frock on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well played all around. Yeah. Next up, we have the Fashion Backwards Award for Backwards Fashion, a.k.a. The Backy. And that goes to Isabel. Oh, my God. Yeah. We already Sheena talked about the Christ. one dress. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Just whose idea was that? Yeah. And it was the... the we had a moment of doubt because uh, Baxter wore a hat to her pretend trial that was an abomination of its own if it weren't for the fact that isabel wore two different also horrible outfits right like her dress at the dinner dinner it looked like it was cut so like there was like a panel in the front but it was so wide yeah it it made her look even wider and the color was terrible yeah and it i mean it looked like when you looked at her straight on it looked like like the runner in a hall yeah like it was just and then when she was at the dowagers earlier she was basically in like a navy burlap sack Mm -hmm. so isabel get your shit together agreed 
Next up, we have the Cutest Baby Award. Okay, so since we took a bye week last week, we had to go with all three of them because we they did. were all... Re- look. They are all right next to each toddlers other. Three toddlers reading books? Yeah. You might as well ask me to cut a baby in half. Right. We it couldn't was, possibly. We couldn't have... Donk is back in Donk, full force. Yeah. M- calling McGee Granny, Granny Violet. You yeah. know, we'll ignore the Red Indian comment because, right. like, That's, Jesus Christ. They're just babies. Yeah. Well, and also just that was... Generally speaking, when we're upset with anything on this show, it's more a function of being mad at Julian Fellows. Right, right. Like, we're mad at the characters, but we're mainly mad at Julian Fellows. Yeah. So these babies... All cute. Very cute. And finally, the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths... We got up to a four this week. We feel... Okay. Right. We feel like we're being a little over generous because it's the last season and we'll never have another opportunity to assign this score. Mm-hmm. She's been scoring consistently low, but I think that line about Marlboro and Wellington, uh, Wellington and, mother, and all that. Yeah. That was good. I enjoyed her, like, her incredulity when she got that note from Clarkson. Yeah. Um, I liked that. Uh, and I feel like there was even something else. Like, she overall. She rearranged the, the place cards. I mean, and mm-hmm. she, you know. Sort of by proxy, we find out that she's been holding on to this, you know, uh-huh. knowledge yeah. about yeah. Chamberlain for years. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So four. Yeah. It's a solid four. That's right. All right. I feel better about that now that we've talked through it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, that has been Downton Abbey, series six, episode five. We're almost to the halfway point, people. That's right. Believe it or not. <laughs> Believe it or not, we're almost done. <laughs> so until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs. downstairs. Luncheon out. <laughs> <laughs>